Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings Podcast, where I share in-depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back, and prepare to be scared. The Bell Witch has been called America's greatest ghost story. The story centers on John Bell and his family who came under attack by an invisible entity in 1817. The Phantom had the ability to speak, move objects, and to cause physical harm. Although the entire family was harassed by the spirit, the main victims were John and his daughter Elizabeth, who was affectionately known as Betsy. While the facts of the case were certainly elaborated upon and added to over the years, It's likely that the story is based on actual events. The earliest mention of the tale is from a captain's journal written in 1820, and all of the characters are real people whose lives have been thoroughly researched and documented. Today, many believe that the Bell Witch is just a legend that grew up over time, but it's impossible to ignore the similarities between the Bell family's ordeal and modern-day poltergeist and demonic cases. The tale has attracted the attention of ghost hunters, skeptics, religious leaders, authors, historians, and curious citizens all over the world. But it's time to start our story, so I'll let you be the judge. Turn off your lights, sit back, and listen to the tale of the Bell Witch. John Bell was a good shot for a farmer. He couldn't claim to have bagged any big game like a few of his neighbors who made a living out of hunting, but he was able to keep plenty of meat on the table for his wife and six children. He and his wife Lucy had moved from North Carolina in 1805 to a farm in Adams, Tennessee. It had a large farmhouse, and over time his landholding grew to 328 acres. After the move, John became an elder of the Red River Baptist Church and was one of the most successful farmers in the area. On this particular cold winter morning in 1817, John was hoping to get a pheasant or two for that night's dinner, but so far he was short on luck. The few birds that he saw foraging in a field at the edge of the woods were alerted of his presence when he inadvertently stepped on a fallen branch. They flew off before he could even raise his gun. After that, he didn't see any others, which was odd. Pheasants were abundant in this area, but that morning, the fields and surrounding woods were unusually still and strangely quiet. Maybe bad weather is headed our way, he thought. He was just about to give up for the day and turn back when something caught his eye. It was an animal, and it was standing in the middle of a cornfield about 30 yards away. At first, he thought it might be a red wolf, but as he took a closer look, he could see that it was the wrong size and color. It was clearly some kind of a large dog, but John had never seen anything like it before. 
It was huge, and its head was especially tremendous, almost too big for its body, which was covered in dark, matted fur that was covered with brambles and bits of dead leaves and twigs. The creature was standing perfectly still, but its ears twitched and its mangy tail moved slowly back and forth behind it. As John stood staring at this dog-like creature, trying to make sense of it, the beast slowly crouched down low, looking as if it was about to charge at him. John quickly raised his gun and fired at it before it had a chance to move. The shot rang out and echoed through the fields, and he was certain that he had struck the animal. But when the smoke cleared and he looked to see where it had fallen, it was gone. The grass was short, so if it was lying there dead, he would have seen it. The thing had been standing in the middle of the field when it charged at him, so there was nowhere that it could have run to. John took a few furtive steps forward, then walked over to the spot where he had struck the animal. But the field was empty. The creature had simply vanished. Light snow was beginning to fall and the wind had started picking up. The fields and surrounding forest were eerily silent except for the sound of the wind rustling through the grass and the tree branches in the nearby forest rattling like dry bones. John quickly made his way back home, constantly turning around to look behind him. All the while, he had an overwhelming feeling that he was being watched and followed, but he could see nothing. As John walked in through the kitchen door, his young wife Lucy had just finished putting breakfast on the table. Shut that door, she said. You're letting the cold and snow in. You're just in time. The cornbread is hot out of the oven and I have ham and eggs all ready for you. Were you able to get a pheasant for tonight? John shut the door behind him, but he just stood there with the snow melting off the shoulders of his coat and dripping from his hat onto the floor. No... No pheasant, he said after a while. Lucy, I just saw something, and I don't know what to make of it. He then proceeded to tell her about his encounter with the huge canine creature and how he felt as if he was being watched on his way home. Maybe it was just a big coyote, she suggested. Lucy, I'm telling you, this thing was huge. Coyotes are smaller than wolves, and this thing was at least twice as big as a wolf. And it looked, well, it looked just all wrong. And like I said, it just disappeared after I shot it. Well, maybe it fell in a hole or something, Lucy said exasperated. I don't know. Let's just not worry our heads about it right now. Maybe ask some of the neighbors if they've seen anything like it on their farms. If they did, then you can get together a hunting party and hunt it down. Come on, breakfast is getting cold. John sat down, but he wasn't in a mood to eat. He knew those fields like the back of his hand, and there were no holes that this thing could have fallen into. He looked out the window at the falling snow and said a quick prayer, all the while feeling as if the beast was circling the house and peering in at him and Lucy as they ate. John tried to put the strange animal out of his mind, but it was impossible to simply reason it away. A few days later, Dean, a man enslaved by the Bell family, overheard John talking about the beast he had seen in the field. Dean said that he too had seen a strange dog. His wife lived on a neighboring farm, and he said that lately he had been followed by a large black dog on evenings that he visited his wife. John wondered if the two creatures could be one and the same. 
Soon, other family members began witnessing unusual things on the property. One day, John's son, Drew, saw a strange bird perched on a fence. He described it as being of extraordinary size. Being the son of a farmer and a hunter, Drew knew all of the wildlife in the area, but this was unlike any bird he had ever seen before. When he approached it, it flapped its massive wings, took off, and flew into the forest. The Bell Farm was fairly isolated, so the family received few visitors. So it was something of a surprise when daughter Betsy and her sisters saw a young girl as they were walking among the big forest trees near the house one day. The girl was wearing a green dress, and she was holding onto one of the low-hanging branches and swinging back and forth on it. The girls were puzzled by the sight of this little girl, but when she saw the sisters approaching, she came down from the branch and ran off into the woods. Search as they might, they weren't able to find the girl. Soon the family began hearing strange sounds in and around the house. Betsy, Drew, and John Jr. began hearing knocking on the doors and windows, the sound of wings flapping against the ceiling, and the sound of rats gnawing on the bedposts. More disturbingly, they heard the sound of someone choking or being strangled. This was followed by the sound of dragging chains and the crash of heavy objects hitting the floor. One night, as the family sat together in the kitchen, they heard the deafening sound of beds being pulled apart and thrown about the room, accompanied by the sound of fighting dogs. They investigated, but the source of the noise was never discovered. No rats were found in the home despite thorough searching, and the furniture was always found to be unharmed. The phenomena began to grow in intensity as the covers were pulled from the children's beds as they slept. Soon, the entity began pulling the children's hair and scratching them. During this time, a strange affliction came over John Bell, which he couldn't account for. He described it as a stiffness of the tongue which came on suddenly. He said that it felt like a small stick of wood was crosswise in his mouth and that it was pressing out both cheeks. Whenever he attempted to eat, the food would be pushed out of his mouth. This suffering condition would persist throughout the family's four-year ordeal. Richard Bell was just a young boy when the strange activity began, but he never forgot the terrifying harassment his family was forced to endure during that time. In 1846, he wrote a memoir about his experience called Our Family Trouble, the story of the Bell Witch, as detailed by Richard Williams Bell. He wrote, I was a boy when the incidents known as the Bell Witch took place. Strange appearances and uncommon sounds had been seen and heard by different members of the family at times a year or two before I knew anything about it. Because they indicated nothing of a serious character to me, these things would have passed unnoticed but for after developments. The knocking on the front door and on the outer walls of our house had been going on for some time before I knew of it. I was usually asleep when these things happened, and Father believed that it was just some mischievous person trying to frighten the family. As such, he never discussed the matter in the presence of the younger children, 
not wanting to frighten us and hoping to catch the prankster. Then, after the unexplainable demonstrations became known to all of us, Father enjoined secrecy upon every member of the family, and it was kept a profound secret until it finally became intolerable. The importance of a diary at that time did not occur to anyone, for we were all subjected to the most intense and painful excitement from day to day and week to week to the end. Therefore, I write from my memory such things as came under my own observations, and incidents known by other members of the family and our near neighbors to have taken place and are absolutely true. Father and mother occupied a room on the first floor, Elizabeth had the room above, and the boys occupied another room on the second floor. John and Drew had a bed together, and Joel and myself slept in another bed. As I remember, it was on a Sunday night in 1818, just after the family had retired. A noise commenced in our room like a rat gnawing vigorously on the bedpost. John and Drew got up to kill the rat, but the moment they were out of bed, the noise stopped. They examined the bed frame, but discovered no marks. As soon as they returned to bed, the noise commenced again, and thus it continued until sometime after midnight. During that time, we were all up a half-dozen times or more, searching the room all over, every nook and corner for the rat, turning over everything, but we could find nothing, not even a crevice by which a rat could possibly enter. This kind of noise continued from night to night and week after week, but all of our investigations were in vain. The room was overhauled several times. Everything was moved and carefully examined, but with the same result. After a few days, the sound began to change location. When we would search our room for the rat, the same noise would instead appear in Sister Elizabeth's chamber, disturbing her and arousing all the family. And so it continued, going from room to room, stopping when we were all up, and commencing again as soon as we returned to bed. It was so exceedingly annoying that no one could sleep. After a while, the noise was accompanied by a scratching sound like a dog clawing on the floor. This sound increased in force until it became evidently too strong for a rat. After this, we went through every room in the house and carefully examined the furniture, beds, and clothing, but nothing irregular could be found, nor was there a hole or crevice by which a rat or any other animal could enter. In spite of our thorough searching, nothing was accomplished beyond the increase of our confusion and evil forebodings. These demonstrations continued to increase, and finally the bed coverings commenced slipping off at the foot of the beds, as if gradually drawn by someone. Occasionally, this was accompanied by a noise like the smacking of lips followed by a gulping sound, like someone was choking or being strangled. All the while, the vicious gnawing at the bedpost continued, and there was no such thing as sleep to be thought of until the noise ceased, which was generally between one and three in the morning. Some new performance was added nearly every night, and it troubled our sister Elizabeth more than anyone else. Occasionally, the sound was like heavy stones falling on the floor, then like metal chains dragging and chairs falling over. 
I call to mind my first disturbing experience, something a boy is not likely to ever forget. After a time, we had all become somewhat used to the mysterious noise and tried to dismiss it from our minds, taking every opportunity for a nap. One day, the family had all retired early, and I had just fallen into a sweet doze when I felt my hair beginning to twist. The pulling was so sudden and so violent that it felt like the top of my head had been taken off. Immediately, Joel yelled out in great fright, then Elizabeth began screaming in her room. Every night after that, something was continually pulling at her hair after she retired to bed. This frightened us so badly that father and mother remained up nearly all night. After this, the main feature of the phenomena was that of pulling the covers off of our beds as fast as we could replace it, as well as other demonstrations. All efforts to discover the source of the annoyance came to failure. My father became convinced that it was something unnatural that was causing the strange activity which was increasing in force. Although we had all kept the secret within our family up to this time, Father finally decided to ask the advice of his nearest neighbor and most intimate friend, Mr. James Johnson, in the hopes that he might be able to solve the mystery. So Mr. Johnson and his wife, at Father's request, came over to spend a night in the investigation. At the usual hour for retiring, Mr. Johnson, who was a very devout Christian, led the family in worship, reading a chapter from the Bible, singing, and praying. He prayed fervently and very earnestly for our deliverance from the frightful disturbance, and that its origin, cause, and purpose might be revealed. Soon after we had all retired, the disturbance commenced as usual. Gnawing, scratching, knocking on the walls, overturning chairs, and pulling the covers off of beds. Every act was exhibited as if on purpose to show Mr. Johnson what could be done, appearing in his room as in other rooms. As soon as someone would light a lamp in one room, the noise would cease and the trouble would begin in another. Mr. Johnson listened attentively to all of the sounds and capers. The sounds which were similar to someone sucking air through the teeth and the smacking of lips indicated to him that some intelligent agency gave force to the movements and he was determined to try to speak to it, which he did. In the name of the Lord, he said, what or who are you? What do you want and why are you here? This appeared to silence the noise for a considerable time but it finally commenced again with increased vigor, pulling the cover from the beds in spite of all resistance, repeating other demonstrations, going from one room to another and becoming increasingly frightful. The persecutions of Elizabeth were increased to an extent that caused the family serious apprehensions. Her cheeks were frequently crimsoned as by a hard blow from an open hand, and her hair was pulled until she would scream with pain. <coughs> Mr. Johnson said the phenomena was beyond his comprehension, but it was evidently preternatural or supernatural, and of an intelligent character. He arrived at this conclusion from the fact that it ceased action when spoken to, and certainly understood language. 
He advised Father to invite other friends into the investigation and to try all means for detecting the mystery. My father consented to this, and from that time on, the details of the strange happenings in our home were made public. All of our neighbors were invited and committees were formed. Experiments were tried, and every night a close watch was kept both inside the house and out, but all of their wits were stifled. It was suggested that Elizabeth should spend the nights with one of the neighbors to get rid of the trouble, and all were very kind to invite her. In fact, our neighbors were all touched with generous sympathy and were unremitting in their efforts to alleviate our distress, for it had become a calamity, and they came every night to sit and watch with us. The suggestion of sending Elizabeth from home was acted upon. She went to different neighbors' houses— James Johnson's, John Johnson's, Jesse Bell's, and Bennett Porter's, but it made no difference. The trouble followed her with the same severity, disturbing the family where she went as it did at our home, nor were we in any way relieved. This gave rise to a suspicion in the minds of some that the mystery was some device or stratagem originated by Elizabeth from the fact that it appeared wherever she went. But this is easily disputed by the fact that the activity continued at home during the periods that she was away. The phenomena was gradually increasing and developing, and it soon proved itself to be of an intelligent character. For example, when asked a question in a way that it could be answered by numbers, such as how many persons are present, how many horses are in the barn, how many miles to a certain place, the answer would come in raps, like a man knocking on the wall, the bureau, or the bedpost with his fist. Or they would come by so many scratches on the wall, like the noise of a nail or claws, and the answers were invariably correct. During this time, it wasn't uncommon to see lights like candle or lamp flitting across the yard or through the fields outside of our house. And another odd thing began to occur frequently. When father, the boys, and field hands were coming in late from work, chunks of wood and stones would fall along the way as if tossed by someone, but we could never discover from whence or what direction they came. In addition to the demonstrations already described, it began slapping people on the face. It was especially brutal in this respect to those who resisted the action of pulling the cover from the bed and to those who came as detectives to expose the trick. The blows were heard distinctly like the open palm of a heavy hand, and the sting was keenly felt, and it continued to pull my hair and to make Joel squall much in the same way as it had up to this point. The phenomena continued to develop force, and visitors persisted in urging the witch to talk and tell what was wanted. Finally, it began whistling when spoken to in a low, broken sound, as if trying to speak in a whistling voice. In this way it progressed, developing until the whistling sound was changed to a weak, faltering whisper, uttering indistinct words. The voice gradually gained strength in articulating, and soon the utterances became distinct in a low whisper, so as to be understood in the absence of any other noise. I do not remember the first intelligent utterance. I recall that it was of no significance, 
but the voice soon developed sufficient strength to be distinctly heard by everyone in the room. This new development added to the sensation already created. The news spread and people came in large numbers. The great anxiety concerning the mystery prompted many questions in the effort to induce the witch to disclose its own identity and purpose. Finally, in answer to the question, who are you and what do you want, a reply came. I am a spirit, the voice said. I was once very happy but have been disturbed. This was uttered in a very feeble voice but sufficiently distinct to be understood by all present, and this was all the information that could be elicited for the time being. Richard Bell's narrative went on to tell about the various explanations the spirit gave of why it had appeared. One was that it haunted the family because they had disturbed a Native American burial mound located on the property. Another time, it claimed to be a disturbed spirit hunting for its lost tooth. It also said that it was a spirit that had returned to reveal the hiding place of a buried treasure, the spirit of a child who was buried somewhere in North Carolina, and it told John Johnson that it was his stepmother's witch. At last, Reverend James Gunn asked that it tell him who it really was. The spirit said that it would not lie to the preacher. It said that it was old Kate Bat's witch, and that its purpose was to torment John, who she referred to as Old Jack, and to kill him. Mrs. Kate Batts was a member of the community who had taken charge of her husband's farm after an injury caused him to become physically disabled. She was known to be kind-hearted and a good neighbor towards those she liked, but she was a very eccentric woman with a difficult personality. Reverend Gunn didn't believe the witch's statement, but many in the community did. People's suspicions about Mrs. Batts obviously angered her which may have been the spirit's intent all along. Whether or not the spirit was telling the truth about its origins, it was thereafter known as Kate, and it answered readily when addressed by that name. With the emergence of full conversations, Kate began to display the ability to know what was happening in distant locations. For instance, it once repeated word for word two different sermons given 13 miles apart at the same time. It also shared gossip about activities in neighboring households. At times, it appeared to leave briefly in order to retrieve information about an inquiry. One of the neighbors, John Johnston, devised a test for the witch. He would ask it something no one outside his family could possibly know. He asked the entity what his step-grandmother in North Carolina would say whenever someone did something wrong. The witch replied in his grandmother's Dutch accent, Hut, hut, what has happened now? The witch seemed to have a knack for imitating people's voices. On one occasion, an Englishman stopped by and offered to investigate the phenomena, though he admitted that he was skeptical of the whole affair. During a conversation where the man mentioned that his parents were overseas, the witch suddenly began to mimic his English parents. The next morning, the man heard the sound of his parents' voices in his room. 
He heard them say that they were worried because they heard their son's voice in their home. The Englishman left that morning and returned to England. Several weeks later, he wrote the Bell family and confirmed that the entity had indeed visited his parents, and he apologized for his initial skepticism. For some unknown reason, Kate often displayed a form of kindness towards John Bell's wife Lucy. It once referred to her as the most perfect woman to walk the earth. The witch would sing hymns to her and give her fresh fruit. It also showed John Bell Jr. some measure of respect as well, but her torment of daughter Betsy was unrelenting. Betsy was engaged to a local man named Joshua Gardner, and the witch made it clear that she was not to marry this man. Kate's voice was heard by many people saying that it forbade the girl to marry Joshua. At times, the witch made cutting remarks about the couple as they walked about the property together. Other times, Kate spoke to Betsy in a soft, melancholy voice that would start out as a distant sighing that gradually got nearer and nearer. Then, with gentle pleadings in loud whispers, Kate would say, Please, Betsy Bell. Don't have Joshua Gardner. Please, Betsy Bell, don't marry Joshua Gardner. Over and over, the mysterious voice would say this in a way that was so sorrowful and grief-stricken that it caused a shudder to creep over everyone who heard it. The voice was so intensely persuasive, gentle, and sweet so extremely mystifying that it not only bewildered the lovers, but brought confusion and concern among the community. Why shouldn't Betsy Bell wed Joshua Gardner? He was handsome and gracious, well-educated, intelligent, industrious, and energetic. He possessed sufficient means for a good start in life, and his integrity was above reproach. Whatever the reason for Kate's absolute opposition to the couple starting a life together, the witch tormented the poor girl in every way imaginable, pulling the covers from her bed as fast as they could be replaced, knocking over chairs in her room, and keeping up a continual gabbing of nonsensical talk and laughter. It pinched the girl so hard that she screamed, and it slapped her cheeks with such force that red marks appeared on her skin. At all hours of the day, it pulled the girl's hair and stuck pins in her body. One day, Betsy's friend Parthony Thorne watched in horror as the hair combs were pulled violently from Betsy's hair. When the combs were pulled out, her hair would become so tangled that it would take a full hour to comb it out. Then, the witch would break out with hilarious laughter. Ha 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 ha, Betsy! If John could see you now, he would envy me. Another favorite trick of the witch was that of tampering with Betsy's shoes. One minute, the laces would be tied so tight that the girl couldn't loosen them. The next, the shoes would be unlaced and jerked from her feet. Sometimes, when Betsy was getting ready for bed, the witch would say, Betsy, let me unlace your shoes. A split second later, the girl's shoes would be pulled off of her feet and thrown across the room. The family's harrowing ordeal continued unabated for the next four years, and in 1821, Kate finally fulfilled her deadly promise. 
John's friend, James Johnson, was with him during the last day of his unexplained illness, that being the odd sensations in his mouth which had persisted over the years, making eating and drinking difficult and painful. One day, Johnson found a strange vial of medicine in the cupboard. No one knew where it came from, and they didn't know what it contained. As they were asking one another about the vial, Kate said, I put the vial there for old Jack and had given him a dose to kill him. When asked how she administered the poison, she said, By pouring it into the dinner pot. Several men who had called in to see Mr. Bell that day heard what the witch said. By now, everyone was well aware that Kate often lied. But just to be sure, someone advised John Jr. to test the contents of the vial on a cat. He gave the cat a very small portion of the liquid, and it instantly went into convulsions. The cat squalled, whirled around, then died a few minutes later. Earlier that day, Drew Bell had gone out to direct the hands about some work on the place before the vial was discovered. The moment he returned, Kate said, Drew, John found that vial of medicine I put in the cupboard for old Jack, and he gave the cat some of it. Lord Jesus, how it did make that cat squall, jump up and down, turn over and die. Apart from difficulty eating, John had enjoyed good health up to the time of this event. But a few days after the vial was found, he fell into a coma and died. The family was inconsolable, and the community came out in force to support them in their mourning. But Kate still hadn't finished tormenting the family. It's said that she interrupted the mourners by laughing and singing drinking songs. After all that her family had endured over the years, Betsy was unwilling to risk subjecting them to further harassment from the spirit. So after her father's death, she called off her engagement to Joshua Gardner. The witch rejoiced at her victory, and she finally stopped harassing Betsy. Instead, she tried to soothe and strengthen the girl's depressed spirit and promised to leave. Soon after, the entity told the family that it was going away, but that it would return in seven years. In 1828, the witch did indeed return as promised, this time to Lucy and her sons Richard and Joel. It commenced with similar antics as it had before, but the family chose not to encourage it. After a few months, Kate, the Bell Witch, finally left and was never heard from again. In his memoir, Richard Bell tried to make sense of his family's ordeal. He wrote, whether it was witchery such as afflicted people in past centuries and darker ages, whether it was some gifted fiend of hellish nature practicing sorcery for selfish enjoyment, or some more modern science akin to that of mesmerism, or some hobgoblin native to the wilds of the country, or a disembodied soul shut out from heaven, or an evil spirit like those Paul drove out of the man into the swine, setting them mad or a demon let loose from hell, I am unable to decide. Nor has anyone yet divined its nature or cause for appearing, and I trust this description of the monster in all forms and shapes, and of many tongues, will lead experts who may come with a wiser generation 
to a correct conclusion and satisfactory explanation. The Bell Witch remains the most famous, beguiling, and enduring American paranormal tale ever told. But apparently, ours is not the wiser generation that Richard Bell had hoped for, because 200 years later, we're left with many of the same questions he asked. Was Kate a witch, a demon, a ghost, a poltergeist? Was she the result of some form of mass hysteria, or was she simply a legend, a tall tale based on actual events that grew up over time? The truth is, we may never know, and that's okay, because life without a little mystery just isn't very much fun now, is it? If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow me and leave a comment. To contact me, use the email address listed in the program notes. I'm Barry Pirro, and this is Haunted Happenings.